0: Welcome to The Athletics of Business, a podcast about how the traits and behaviors of elite athletes and remarkable business leaders frequently intersect. The real stories and hard lessons to help you
1: level up your leadership and performance. Now your host, Ed Molitor. Welcome back to another episode of The Athletics of Business podcast. I am your host and CEO of The Molitor Group, Ed Molitor. And do we have an amazing conversation for you today with our special guest, And I'm going to tease you a little bit about what this conversation is about. We talk a lot here about connecting and caring. Matter of fact, I just got back from delivering a keynote to a wonderful client of mine in the BioPharma biotech space. And their theme that they've been focused on for a while is connection through collaboration. I absolutely love that. And I talked about owning your engagement with external stakeholders, internal stakeholders, with your peers, your team members, the people you lead, even owning the engagement with your own personal growth. And this all pours into the philosophy and the concept Of caring leadership, which serves as a powerful catalyst in fostering commitment, trust, and success within a team. Now, think about it. When coaching leaders embrace authenticity, vulnerability, and open communication, those three things we talk about all the time, it creates an environment of genuine and honest relationships with team members, and it paves the way for a positive and not just a successful work culture, but a thriving work culture. And this psychological safe space what does it lead to? It leads to stronger collaboration and individual performance think about combining those two things, right? That ignites the potential within every single team member. So on this new episode of the Athletics Business Podcast, I am joined by Mike Campbell. Now, Mike was a former star football player at Auburn University who played for the legendary Pat Dye, and took so much away from his time with him. And he is a remarkable business leader in the biopharma and biotech industry, currently senior vice president, head of commercial for Beatrice Eye Care. His career journey unveils a profound lesson and the power of caring leadership that resonates with emerging and enrolled leaders. Think about that. It resonates with both the emerging and enrolled leaders. And as a young pharmaceutical rep, Mike faced his share of challenges, unsure of how to navigate the unknown territory. And for you leaders enrolled right now, for you folks in leadership position right now, just listen to this, what I'm going to say here, okay? But this changed early in his career when a caring and supportive manager stepped in, believing in Mike's potential and investing time and expertise to guide him on the path to greatness. And it was this revelation that helped Mike tap into his own capabilities, knowledge, and principles, honed through his education, and yes, his athletic experiences, laying the foundation for his leadership styles, and unyielding hunger for growth. And here we are 30 years later, and he has had 30 amazing years in a biopharma and biotech industry, and with an incredible track record. And that's exactly what transformational power of caring can do. So if you're curious to discover how the intentional act of caring can shape remarkable leaders and thriving work cultures, this episode is an absolute must listen. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today on the Athletics of Business podcast. I am beyond thrilled to have you here. Yeah,
0: thanks, Ed. I mean, I'm looking forward to it too. Really enjoyed our first conversation. So um looking forward to talking.
1: With yeah, you. we should have been recording our first conversation or recording the podcast for on our first conversation. So much incredible content. We'll duplicate that today, but Congratulations on thirty years in the pharma space, right? And I want I want to get to that in a second. But an amazing career, you know, at Auburn. Then you go on to play in the CFL. You get out, an injury ends your career. And what happened then? I mean, how did you get to where you are today?
0: Yeah, it was a it was a journey. So once I was released up in Canada, obviously there was an injury involved, and tried to come back from it, and just wasn't able to. I didn't know what to do, Ed. I mean, I had graduated from Auburn, had my degree had very little work experience other than some summer jobs when I was a kid. But my whole life was about playing this game. I was fortunate enough to have my education paid for, obviously, at Auburn through it. And I was fortunate enough to play for a bit up in the CFL. But um, outside of that, I had no tangible work experience. And so I went home uh, from Canada, You know, grew up in the Tampa area, Tampa Bay, Florida area. And I think I actually went through some level of depression because I was lost. I didn't know what to do. You know, my whole backup plan actually was I had an opportunity while I was Auburn to do an internship one summer with the FBI, and back then, Ed, it was it sounds more glamorous than it really was because it was really filing papers into a file cabinet. It was really all it was. Well, what a presence
1: you would have had filing papers, right? I know,
0: but I was filing papers, and but I got to meet some great people at the FBI, and they were like, "Listen, if this is something you want to do, you need to either get a master's of accounting." or go to law school. And so I always had that in the back of my head. And so when I got back to Florida, was with my parents trying to figure out what to do with my life, I figured, hey, you know, I'll just go to law school. And so uh, took the LSAT, applied to law school, got into law school, and was about two and a half, three months away from starting law school when a buddy of mine who had gone from Auburn had gone right into pharmaceuticals, talked to me a bit about maybe coming into this industry. Of course, I was a little gun-shy, I had no experience. So that's how that transition started to happen. There was a period of kind of lost, if you will, from having your identity really around the sport that you had played to trying to figure out what to do with your career, with your life, how to get started with a career. And so it was that whole journey that was a really interesting growing up process.
1: You know, you, you made a point in our our first conversation where the light bulb really went on when you realized you could compete in something other than football. Can you talk into that a little bit?
0: Yeah, that's a really great point. I think that's where. The connection in kind of the business world and in my industry and biotech and pharma really kind of struck a chord with me. It wasn't until I had been in as a brand new pharmaceutical rep in the early 90s that it really hit me. This is about competing and this is about leading and this is about using some of the things that I had learned in the sport around team and around work ethic and around goal setting. And all those things triggered for me. And it was like, man, I have found a career or a profession or an industry that really taps into those things that I loved about the game of football.
1: Did it click right away for you? Did the number start popping right away? How did that go?
0: No, actually um, it didn't. Uh, I mean, when I first started as a pharmaceutical rep, the gentleman that hired me came out and and worked with me about six months into the job. And I'll tell you the first six months, I mean, I was, they train you and they help you, but back then you're kind of on your own. I mean, we didn't have laptops. We didn't have cell phones. My target list was literally the yellow pages and I was going from doctor's yeah. office to doctor's <laughs> office. And I had no idea. I mean, I I felt like I was banging my head in the wall. My manager came and rode with me about six months into it. And I'll never forget this because he came to ride with me and he was with me out calling on doctors. And it was about 1045 in the morning. We'd seen several doctors by this point. And he's like, Hey, listen, Mike, let's just go get some lunch, early lunch. Let's just go. He could tell I was frustrated. So we go to lunch and he looks at me and he says, Hey, do you ever wonder why I hired you? And I was like, listen, every day I wonder why you hired me. Why me? And he very simply broke it down for me. And that's when the light bulb went off, Ed, because the way he described it was, listen, I, first of all, to have an opportunity to talk to Auburn coaches who were on your reference list, I mean, when am I ever going to have an opportunity? Because that's all I had, Ed. All I had was football. So on my reference list when I applied for the job was Pat Dye, the head coach at Auburn.
1: And And if you don't get the job with Pat Dye on your reference list, you got some issues.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, yes or no. I guess it depends on which side of the fence you you Uh, fall on, Alabama or Auburn, right? So so. but anyway. No, but anyway, he said, first of all, when I mean, when would I ever have an opportunity to talk to these gentlemen? Mm -hmm. And he said, But you know, Mike, what they said about you when I talked to them was, this is a guy that will give you everything he's got. And that's all I had, Ed. You know, when I was playing football, it was, for me, it was about giving everything I had and going 100% sideline to sideline every play. That was my whole mentality. Because that makes up for talent in some ways, right? I mean, if you're not the most talented or if you're not the most athletic, or even if you're a bit undersized, you can make that up, especially at a Division One college and certainly in the CFL, you can make some of that up with effort. That's what they talked about. This manager that had hired me said, Mike, just give me the effort. Just keep going. I'll teach you all these other things. Just don't quit. And that's when the light bulb hit that, man, all I got to do is apply the same principles that I had learned in college and in the CFL and really throughout my whole youth of playing little league football. It was those same principles that turned on for me.
1: Was it hard for you to put the trust in him when he said that to you? Because you and I both know when you come from a world of the high level athletics, right? Like every single day. I mean, from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed, you are fully invested in that football program. You are fully invested in what you are doing, immersed in your academic world. And you go through some battles together, which is where the, re- the real trust comes from. So how did you turn yourself over to him? What was it about that manager that you connected with that allowed you to trust him and trust the processes that he was putting in front of you?
0: Yeah, no, that's such a great question. And, and the reality is I had picked this up, you know. looking back on it, I saw this in my coaches at Alder, and that's what made me identify it. What I realized, Ed, is that coaches that invested in me, they cared about me. And I saw this caring, like they invested in a way that I knew they were doing it for my good. It was an investment in me that, um, I mean, you may have heard that quote from Teddy Roosevelt that says, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And so those coaches had invested in me in a way that I knew they cared about me. And I saw the same thing in this manager. He was investing his time. He was investing his expertise and he believed in me. And I could see that I picked up on it. And so that opened the door, obviously, for me to be able to say, listen, I'll do what you say. I will listen to what you have for me. You can punch me in the nose with feedback. I'm okay with that. Right. Lord knows I'm used to it from football. So, you know, you're not going to hurt my feelings. And actions, you know, he did that for me. And so when I saw those actions, I knew I could trust him.
1: And the other end, and we talk to when we work in our LSCP program, we're working with the leaders in role. We talk a lot about the more you invest in someone and show them you care, the more skin in the game that you have, and the harder and smarter that you're going to work for them. Did that that's right. correlate in that relationship too? Yeah, that's exactly
0: it. It's a relationship or an investment from a leadership standpoint that I've tried to emulate throughout my career, actually, because I truly believe it. I mean, I truly believe that. There's elements of leadership that are all about caring, are all about the heart. And if you can get the heart, if people see that you're invested in their good, they're now invested in you. They will go places, they will work harder, they will do things that will help the entire team, the entire organization succeed. And so, I mean, that's a big piece of what I believe is part of the leadership style that I try to emulate.
1: So let me ask you this if I can, and I'm going to skip ahead because there's a couple other things I want to get to. But one of the issues I deal with, right, like you want to connect, you want to get them to self-select into what you are doing. You want to connect not just to their mind, but to their heart and get that emotional attachment to their goals and the mission. How do you handle it when you see someone with potential, but they're not buying in and you can't quite figure out what it is, right? You can't quite put your finger on it. They're still putting up decent numbers, but you know, they're capable of more, you know, internally they want to do more, but they can't seem to get themselves over the hump with that.
0: That's a million-dollar question right there, right? Because that could be essentially a million dollars to the top line if you can right. get them to move, right? Yeah, right. And, and you know, I think it's it's probably multifactorial. But some of the things that I've seen, Ed, is sometimes people just need a little bit more coaching and guidance around their activities and their performance. But I think at the end of the day, I mean, listen, good human beings, they don't wake up and say, hey, I'm going to be average today. They don't say, I'm going to go do a bad job today. And so understanding that premise that people want to be good, people want to succeed, people want to be recognized for their accomplishments. And sometimes it's being able to diagnose that specific situation, whether it's motivation or whether it's something that they're trying to or they're not trying to accomplish, meaning there's different levels of accomplishment in the way we structure our incentive compensation and the way we think about promotions and the way we think about career development. And so sometimes it's being able to tap into what's most important to this person and being able to make getting to the next level about that. Sometimes it's that. You know, I had a great manager one time when I first got into leading people. He said, Mike, if you're ever confused about what motivates one of your people, just listen to what they're talking about when they're not talking about work. And that's that's what motivates them. And so trying to diagnose some of those things, that is is one way I have found to be able to try to challenge in a positive way, somebody going from maybe middle of the pack to the top of the pack, or at least being able to make incremental improvements along the way. Uh, and sometimes it's just tapping into those motivational factors.
1: And when you when you work on tapping into them, right, figuring out what makes them tick, how important is it when you ask the question, when you ask the powerful question, how important is it to listen to not only what they're saying, but what they're not saying?
0: That's exactly right. Yeah. I'll give you a good example. I was an early manager and I had a situation similar to what you're describing. And I was trying to uncover like, what is it that I can do here to kind of motivate this person to really do, like I could see so much more potential in, you know, what it was that they were delivering. And I remember being out in the field with this person. We spent two days together calling on customers. And I remember being quiet and listening to what he was talking about when he wasn't talking about work. And what I was picking up on was it, it was a lot about vacation. It was a lot about family. It was a lot about wanting to spend time with his more more time with his kids. And, you know, so it was it was that conversation. And at least that's what I was picking up on. I wrongfully assumed that, hey, that's what I'm going to tap into here. And so I started talking about, you know, as he continues to progress, the opportunities to have more time off, the the way our vacation policy works. And at the end of the day, he looked at me and he was like, Mike, that, that's great. But I mean, I don't have the money to be able to to do all these extra vacations that I want to do. For him, it was more about money. It was more about being able to make more money so that he could do more more, of these kind of vacations. But I would still argue that your strategy worked. Because at the end of the day,
1: you got to exactly what made him sick, though, correct?
0: That's right. That's right. So then, obviously... That whole conversation changed. And we were able to look at the compensation plan and say, well, look, I mean, if we increase sales by this much, here's how your compensation goes up. And here's how it looks quarterly. And here's how it looks over the course of the year. How many more vacations could this be? And so sometimes it was just being able to diagnose some of those things, but also being open to the fact that it may not be what you originally think it is. There may be a layer below that or two that you really got to get to.
1: And how significant is that for a leader to be able to put their their prejudices, and I don't know if that's the correct word, but their judgment aside when they ask the question, not assume that they know the answer, right? And to, to be open. Because sometimes yeah. if you're caught off guard with the answer, not everybody is emotionally intelligent as you that can eventually get to the correct answer. How significant and how hard is that to push that aside?
0: I mean, that is the key, right? The key is... Just to be able to really listen and try to understand without trying to make some of those assumptions. For me, I think we always assume that in, in our sales world that it's about dollars, right? It's about money. It's about recognition. Those are the two things that typically people assume it's about. But but for for a lot of people, yeah, it's it's that. But there may be something under that that's even more important. And so it's being able to put some of those initial assumptions aside and just really trying to understand. It's an investment in time. Ed, is really what we're talking about here, right? It's an investment in time. And that investment in time is what allows people to know that you've got their best interest at heart and you really are trying to help them accomplish something. And I think that's that leadership principle that we were talking about earlier is being able to get to that heart level.
1: Psychological safety. It is so important. It's so significant. And it's something as athletes you and I can never have imagined, right? And yeah. please know that I'm not putting myself athletically on, on your level, but those times, the era we lived in, like that just was not a conversation. It was mental toughness, physical toughness. We come to learn that part of psychological safety is making room for the mental toughness, right? Making room for the mental resilience. How do you go about creating that environment where your people can take risks? They can take chances. They can know that if they fail, they are going to be given the space and the opportunity to learn from it. It's interesting that you just asked that because one of the books that I'm reading right now
0: is called The Fearless Organization. Uh, it's by Amy Edmondson. It's all about creating that psychological safety within an organization. I mean, one of the reasons that I went back and pulled this book back out again is because obviously as a, as a company that I'm in now, you know, we just went through a acquisition earlier this year. So we're integrating our company that we had into a new company. And so clearly that, that creates a lot of kind of emotion. It also creates a lot of questions. You know, This is a book that I had gone through in an executive leadership program that I was put through multiple years ago and it struck a chord with me. But the book, I think, defines it well to kind of talk about your question here. It really talks about how you create this kind of psychological safety for people so that not only do they feel like they can they can move forward, but allows them in the workplace to be able to innovate, it allows them to grow, it allows them to, to learn and, and kind of move forward. And so a lot of that psychological safety, though, that the way I interpret it is really about giving people the room to be able to do things and empower them to do those things, allow them to make the mistakes. But yeah, that comes through actions. I mean, I can stand up in front of a large group of people and I can say all these things, but until they see it in action, it doesn't mean anything. And so it's about me and my leaders making sure that we are actually pulling this through, that we are empowering them, that we are giving them a voice to be heard and they can talk about what's going well and what's not going well. And they see those actions coming through is I think when you really get to that safety piece because nobody's willing to really get there until they see it actually happen.
1: As a leader, there's a saying here on the wall, self-awareness is the competitive advantage. As a leader, how significant, because you and I both know like we can get so caught up into the busyness and the the craziness that we default to a certain behavior we may have had years ago. How important is self-awareness in being able to Create that psychological safety and recognizing when it's an opportunity like this right here. No matter how adverse this situation is, or how annoying it is, or how untimely it is, this is an opportunity for me to help foster that psychological safety. I think one of the things
0: that, and I can see myself doing this earlier in my career, and and really kind of getting punched in the stomach over it. And you learn, right? You learn not to do certain things for right. sure, right? But I think one of the things um, that I have picked up uh, through the journey of this past thirty years is that. Nobody should see my leadership style change, regardless of whether we are at a high or whether we are at a low or whether we're going through something you know really complex. And that's something Ed that I try to keep on the forefront because that style, that that approach, that leadership approach should never change. That helps keep me in check. But it's things around really the drivers in leadership for me are all about not taking myself too serious, right, and being able to showcase that, and then things like being able to simplify. And be able to help people succeed through simplification. It's things like you're never as good or as bad as your numbers, meaning at the end of the day, you're good at what you do and you may have ups and downs, but it's a team approach. If you're having a lot of success, well, let's be careful and let's make sure that we recognize that there was a lot of contributors to that success. It wasn't just about one person. And the same is true if you're having a rough quarter or if you're having a rough year. And so it's being able to balance those things so that regardless of whether you're having a lot of success or whether you're not, that leadership doesn't change. That approach doesn't change.
1: And that speaks to one of the, the tenets of, of my life, of our business and the way we do things, and I'd like to think of, of our family as well, is authenticity. And the way when I talk about authenticity, I break it into honesty, the ability to be honest with yourself and others, integrity, so your actions and your words are aligned. And then, and then the one that I think is so significant is a vulnerability piece. Right? Not feeling like you always have to have the answer, but being willing to seek help elsewhere, getting the answers. How much does authenticity show up in that trust to be able to create that environment in the consistency of, you know, we talk a lot here about being the face and voice that your team needs to see and hear. How significant is that and how connected that is to you in being consistent in your leadership style?
0: Yeah. I mean, I would love to say there's a great tool or tip or development around something like this. And I don't know how else to be, to be honest. It's just, some of this is just how I was raised, I guess. I I don't know. I get a lot of kind of jokes, if you will, because I use a lot of my grandmother's saying, as I lead people. I mean, my grandmother was wise. I mean, she would say things to me, Ed, like the arrows of truth can be dipped in honey. I didn't really understand all that growing up. But when I started leading people, it's like, listen, you can lead people and you can still do it in a way where you don't demean them. You can have a hard conversation, but you can do it with kindness, right? And you can still do it is the point. And so it's some of those things Ed, that I think comes out in that authenticity is just, it's who you are. And so I don't know how else to be any different. I mean, I actually, believe it or not, I actually got feedback at one point in my career that I was too transparent. I'm not sure I understand exactly what that means, Mm -hmm. but I actually wear that as kind of a badge of honor. Okay. Yeah. I I don't mind being too transparent. Right. Right. And so it's, it's some of those elements and it's not just me. I mean, I surround myself with really good people who believe the same things, right. That have kind of the same leadership tenets that ultimately fall kind of within that servant leadership approach. And that's how we build out part of our organization, part of our leadership approach, part of our leadership thinking. And so it's, it's really in that authenticity piece where, I mean, we're just who we are. I mean, I'll I'll give you a great story real quick, Ed. So I had come from from a big pharmaceutical, what you would consider a very conservative pharmaceutical company, you know, kind of the blue suit, white shirt, blue or red tie only kind of organization. And I had an opportunity to go to this kind of emerging biotech company that was headquartered in the West Coast that was all about culture. And they were all about kind of this. We don't want to be like all other companies kind of approach. And I remember going there Ed, and we were preparing for a big meeting. And I was told that I was going to have to dress up in a costume and be a part of a skit on stage as part of this award ceremony. And I was thinking, first of all, I thought they're pumping me, right? This is not really about to happen, but it, it was real. And I did it. Here's what I learned. It was all about self-deprecation. It was all about putting leaders up and allowing people to see them in a completely different way. They were onto something. Now, I'm not a proponent of dressing up in costumes at business meetings. I I mean, that's not what I'm saying. But, But getting to that point where you can not take yourself too serious, that's the lesson. So that was part of that kind of transition moving forward of being able to think about, okay, well, how can I allow who I am to come through in my leadership? And a lot of it is around being transparent, being authentic. It's just being real with people. And I think that's the piece that I saw come out of some of those things that I
1: did at that biotech company the more authentic you have been and you have become the more vulnerable the more open right the more honest in return have you seen the people that you lead in return they become more authentic they they're more willing to open up to you they're more willing to share what makes them tick which enables you to be a better leader for them i think so ed i mean obviously i think one of the things that is probably
0: a sign of that is that you know as you think about kind of the journey that you go on in a career Usually there's multiple companies, there's acquisitions that happen, there's integrations that happen into new companies, and the people piece becomes even more important. And that's what you end up learning is that you actually reach a point in your career that it's about who you work with and for, and it's more important than almost anything else is aligning yourself with the kind of people that you want to be around. And so I think about those leaders that I have now, and many of these leaders have followed or have been with me at multiple companies and multiple acquisitions. They had choices, right? They had choices to go to places. They had choices to go and do other things, but they've chosen to continue to work together. And I think a lot of that has to do with because we think the same way. I mean, we believe the same way. We lead the same way. They trust and I trust them. And so I think that's an indication that authenticity, that leadership, that it connects people that want to be with like minded people. It kind of connects us together as we take this journey through different organizations.
1: And do you do you find over the years, when you continue to work with these folks and like-minded individuals, you share or at least you're aligned in the values, but it allows you to set these exceptional standards and have extraordinary expectations and at the same time, you hold each other accountable. How does that work?
0: No question about it. Well, I mean, it works just as you described. I mean, that's exactly how it works. I mean, I think... You know, we align on what our business objectives are, what our culture tenets are. I mean, we align on all those things, but we hold each other accountable to those. The folks that are on my leadership team have no problem calling me out. And I don't have a problem calling them out with the arrows of truth being dipped in honey. It's a good process for us. And I think it's consistent and we're committed to it. And as long as we continue to be committed to that, as long as we continue to hold each other accountable to it, then there's no reason to think that we can't move the entire organization forward.
1: Now, I'm going to transition here into talking about something with the emerging leaders and high performers, if I can. But I have to go back to 1989 Iron Bowl, okay? (laughs) An amazing picture of you sacking Gary Hollingsworth, your celebration. I can only imagine the rush that you were feeling. I can only imagine what was going through your head, how ecstatic you were. Now you get into the pharma business. Could anything come close to matching that? And if so, that feeling, right? that feeling of accomplishment, like this is why we do the work. This is why we put in the work. If so, what was it that matched that? Wow. What a
0: really thoughtful question.
1: I think Ed, the only thing that I can put my finger
0: on that that is similar to that experience from the 1989 Iron Bowl. And there's multiple examples of this, but it's that ability or that accomplishment of seeing people that you've invested in being able to move up in their career. Mm -hmm. There's a gentleman right now that is CEO of a company that I trained back in, gracious, it was probably early 2000s as a brand new, unexperienced salesperson. And I was his trainer. And he's CEO of a multi-billion dollar company right now. Those kinds of experiences are the only thing that comes close to what that 89, but it's it's that investment in people and seeing them succeed. That feeling right. of of accomplishment, or at least proud, you know, proud for them, feeling like you had some level of, of fingerprints in the process. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that, I mean, that 1989 Iron Bowl was all about a team that over accomplished, right? That feeling of being able to accomplish something with a group of people is the same kind of feeling when I can have an opportunity to invest in a person and in, be able to move, you know, be able to move their career forward.
1: And here's what's really cool about and this is exactly why I and this was not pre we did not talk about this before. This is something yeah. that I asked specifically with a purpose. I had a gut feeling you were not going to say because after your conversation and Eli with your boss that you made president's club in your first year. Okay? <laughs> I had a feeling it wasn't going to be about numbers, it wasn't going to be about awards, it wasn't going to be about trips. It was going to be about the impact that you had on people that have gone on to do other things where your leadership impacted them exponentially. And here's my my next question for you on that. Does a high performer always make an effective leader? Oh, absolutely not.
0: No, no, no. I mean, it's not leader leading. Leading is obviously about being able to get to performance, mm-hmm. but leading is not performance. Right. And so, yeah. There's multiple examples of where we've taken a high performing salesperson and put them into a leadership role and they failed miserably. And I blame us for that. I mean, we didn't prepare them for that. So, you know, I, I mean, I say this all the time, Ed, I will not promote a skinny tree, meaning I will not take somebody who's only done one thing, right? Call it sales and or marketing or market access or payer related contracting or any of the dynamics to go into a biotech, you know, kind of pharma environment. The people that that move up in the organization and the people that we invest in from a development standpoint, and we invest in everybody developmentally, but what we try to do is make it a very broad tree so that you've got experiences not only in sales, but also in marketing, but also in market access. And that we put you through opportunities to learn leadership principles and, and to be able to put some of those in action. But no, it's taking a high performer and putting them in a leadership role is a recipe for disaster.
1: So is it safe to say that advice to emerging leaders would be to pursue different roles in different capacities, learn different things, wear different hats, instead of feeling like after two, three years of absolutely killing it, that you're ready, that you yeah. get what it takes to make people perform. I mean, that's not what it's just about, right? No. that's a, And I mean, I use this
0: example when I have an opportunity to mentor. I mean, I have zigzagged my whole career, and I mean, I've taken lateral moves. I've taken moves up and sideways and on paper, it would be a step back. But the reality is, I mean, I got some great development coaching early in my career that said, listen, there's there's two ways you can advance your career. One is to be an inch wide and a mile deep, meaning being really specialized in your area. That's valuable, right? Organizations see that as value. The other way is to be just the opposite, right? To be a mile wide and an inch deep, meaning you know a lot about the organization and multiple functions, and that makes you valuable. Well, Ed, I don't know if it's my ADD or I don't know what it is, but I was never the person that was going to be really satisfied being in, you know, a mile deep. Right. I, I get bored. So for me, it was it was more of a of a of a learning that said, hey man, I, I just want to go do these other things and learn so that one day I would be prepared to take on more responsibility and know about these other departments. So I spent time in finance. I spent time in sales and marketing and market access and all these different functions because at the end of the day, I knew that that for me personally, that was going to give me an opportunity to take on more responsibility and actually run an organization that had all of those components to it because I knew not a master of all of it, but I knew enough where I could be in a good position to be successful. So this whole skinny truth thing is a analog that I use quite a bit.
1: Did someone give you that nudge? Was there a mentor that said, "Hey, listen, Mike, if this is what you want to do, here's your approach. I mean, you have to zigzag. You have to wear different hats." Was there a mentor that that shared that with you?
0: Well, I think there was multiple. That initial mentor was the one that was talking to me about the inch wide, mile deep, or the mile wide, inch deep, right? And so that concept really struck me. And so that's how I managed my career, Ed. And right or wrong, I mean, that's how I kind of approached it. And even today, I mean, I'm not a about the next level. I mean, I'm okay zigzagging and getting more experiences and learning more. I mean, I think that's the approach. I mean, at least has worked for me.
1: You know, obviously, I do my prep for our podcast, reading your LinkedIn uh, recommendations from folks that have worked with you, worked alongside you, and the things they say about you. How did you find your leadership voice? Where did you develop your leadership style? Did any of it have to do with Pat Die winning all-time greats? I mean, where did that come from?
0: You know, I think it's it's multiple places actually. You know, I mentioned my grandmother earlier. I mean, it started there. And I mean, she was so wise beyond her years. And I think back on just what that meant. I mean, she would say things and you know, like common sense isn't so common, you know, when she'd see something happen, or she would these little nuggets, right? And she was just being herself, but man, they stuck with me. And then as as I got to Auburn, obviously seeing leaders like Pat Dye invest in me and and knowing that they cared about me and was able to simplify things so I could be successful. Those are principles I picked up for sure during that time period. And then of course, over the last 30 years of this journey in biotech and pharma, I've had leaders along the way that have reinforced many of those same principles around being authentic and being transparent with people and making sure they know how much you care. And sometimes it's as easy as just and this is what Pat Diver is really good at. Sometimes it's as easy as just slowing down enough explain the why. I mean, we can tell people, hey, here's what I'd like you to go do. But man, when you can connect the why, like here's the reason and here's why, that's an overlooked principle that sometimes you get in the heat of the battle and you get moving too quickly. And sometimes you forget to slow down enough just to explain the why. And people connect to that why, right? Because they play a role in the why. And so I think that element of it are, are all things that I picked up, not only from Football, but also from some of the mentors that I've had in this industry.
1: And along those lines, I know you take a, a great deal of satisfaction in being able to fulfillment, I should say, not satisfaction, fulfillment, and being able to simplify the complex. I and mean, we live in this world where it's paralysis by analysis. We overthink almost everything, right? Because yeah. I mean, the pace and rate of change is greater than we've ever seen. I, I get it. How do you do that?
0: You know, uh, I mean, I wish. I mean, again, I wish I had a great silver bullet. Here's the reality of it, though. The reality is, is what I learned for me is that I have to get really comfortable with about 70 to 80% of the information to make a decision. Okay. And most people want 100% want overanalyze. And for me, it was about getting really comfortable with about 70 to 80% of the information and being able to move forward. And so once I get there, then for me, it's, it's really about being able to take... I mean, what is it that people actually have control over to move this business objective forward and keeping it that simple? I mean, I think it's human nature at times to overcomplicate, to be candid. I think it's kind of how we're built. And so for me, it's about just trying to do the opposite. It's about trying to uncomplicate, make it as easy as possible for you know people to go execute and be successful. And if you think about leading a large group of people, Ed, I mean, the more people you get charging the same hill, the odds are on your side. So that's the simplicity level that I'm trying to think about and get to, mm-hmm. right? It's how do I get the most amount of people charging the same hill, which is that objective. Mm-hmm. And the only way I can do that is to keep it simple, is to keep it, you know, here are the two or three things, here are the, the objectives that we're trying to get to over the next three months. And it's going to hinge on X, Y, and Z. And being able to keep it at that level, um, I think is what's, what's allowed some of these large teams to be able to have success.
1: How do you do that cross-functionally if there's pushback from I don't want to say one of the other silos, but the other side? Like, how do you make that happen cross-functionally?
0: So, if you think about the organization that I that I lead now, I mean, it's got marketing, market access, uh, which is all the payer and trade dynamics. It's got the sales function. It's got the operations team. I mean, it's about two hundred and fourteen people right now, and the first thing is being able to align the strategy or the objective across that entire group. Because the reality is what marketing is doing ties into that. What market access is doing ties into that same objective. What operations is doing is, is creating some of the tools and resources that allows us those objectives to happen. And so it's really being able to get everything down to a singular objective that that entire cross-functional team is operating towards. And then it's being able to break down the simple execution in each of those departments that contribute to that objective that's an area though that you know sounds easier than it is to actually do right and not to mention sometimes those change from quarter to quarter and sometimes they're not always consistent sometimes you got to be able to call an audible and you need to be able to learn from you know what's happened so far in the year and be able to make some changes moving forward in the year and so sometimes you know those areas those objectives those you know simplified execution areas sometimes they change
1: and you've got to be
0: nimble enough to be able to make some of those moves
1: and speaking of nimble as you lead leaders, how do you go about identifying when it's time to give them a little bit of space to let them find their way, to let them make their mistakes or achieve their level of success on their own? And when you when do you identify the time to step in and lean yeah. in, and then figure out, am I going to coach them here? Am I going to mentor them here?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a situational kind of question you're asking there, and but it's it's so relevant and it's so true and. I mean, I'm big into empowerment. I, I mean, I want people to be able to, I'm going to hire them for a reason. And i mean, I hire them because they're good mm-hmm. at what they're doing. The worst thing I can do is get in their way. So but it happens it all is, the
1: time, not you, but yeah. in leadership, it happens of all course. the
0: time. Yeah, of course it does. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, think part of it is, is being able to stay out of their way. There's a space in there that brings forward one of the things that I try to, try to live by which is a servant leadership kind of approach, really, which is removing obstacles. And so for me, it's about empowering them to do their job and making sure that I am doing my part to remove obstacles out of their way so that they can be successful in what I hired them to do. As long as that progression is happening, the worst thing I could do is get in the way. If that progression is not happening, well, then it's an opportunity to sit down and find out why. And there may be things in there. Maybe there's other obstacles that I can help with. There may be things that they need to develop to be able to be more successful. But that's kind of that sweet spot of where you can start to see, is it working? And are they being successful or not? And are they able to you know, accomplish all the things they're trying to accomplish? Or is there something else here going on? But typically, that's a paradigm of time, right? And so you know, it's not the same for everybody. But being able to keep that connection in place so you can identify it when there is an opportunity is, I think, one of the best things that you can do as a leader
1: how relevant is this? We only grow through discomfort. And even though we talk about removing obstacles, which is our role, but there has to be a time, right? Where they have to struggle. They need to struggle. They need to live inside of that struggle and find their way. No question about it. I mean, the way
0: I talk about, I think where you're going with this is that you have to be able to live with your decisions, right? And even the bad decisions you make, you've got to reach that point where you have to live with the consequences of those decisions. That's the only way you grow and learn. I mean, if you think about most of us, most of what we have learned either in life or in our careers is from the mistakes that we've made. Mm-hmm. You know, it's obviously there's successes that you learn from that you try to repeat. But most of my biggest learnings have been where I did it wrong and I got it wrong. And so, I, I mean, obviously I knew, uh, well, I don't want to do it that way again, right? And so to your point, there is a huge value in development And allowing somebody to make those mistakes, live with those mistakes, learn from those mistakes and move on. And I think those are areas that all of us, or at least in my leadership teams, that we we actually talk about this and we actually try to keep, hold each other accountable that we're not trying to save somebody, if you will, but we allow them to learn
1: from it. You played a very violent game, right? Very up-tempo, very high-paced, even though there's time in between plays. I mean, it moved very fast. How did you as a football player and how have you developed the ability as an executive in the pharma space to keep a level head, to keep an even head, a quiet mind, so to speak, right? To stay above the fray. How did you develop that? Like, what advice would you have for others who are still on that roller coaster ride where they're reacting to things that happen emotionally as opposed to controlling the response and the conversation that goes on inside their head? Yeah. Being quiet is a valuable, valuable leadership lesson. I mean, it really is. You know, sometimes
0: just shut up and just yeah. be quiet. It, seriously. I mean, I got, you know, we all go through those kind of 360 feedback, you know, things and, and I'll never forget, you know, as a brand new people leader or second line people leader, one of the pieces of feedback that came back uh, in some of these 360s that you do, people didn't feel comfortable speaking up when I was in the room because they felt like I had already made up my mind. And like, they didn't have an opportunity to you know, have a different opinion. And so I remember trying to dissect that when I got that feedback. And what I realized, Ed, is that I was the first person to try to speak up in a room. One, I felt like I had an answer. But secondly, I felt like, hey, let's, let's maximize our time. And so I didn't allow the room to kind of ideate, if you will, or be thought partners. I felt like I already had the answer. And what I learned was, be the last person to speak. And sometimes the room would default to me like they were waiting for me. And so what I learned there was just a very simple tool to be able to say, listen, folks, I i mean, I've got an opinion, but I want to hear everybody's opinions first before I share anything. I want to I want to hear what everybody else has to say. And so I learned that. And so but the value in that was just being quiet and just not being the first person to think that you've got all the answers, but allowing other people to invest in that thought. And then well, the other thing I learned that is that you get so much more skin in the game in that decision because yeah. so many more people are bought
1: into it automatically. Great segue into, and I hate the fact that we're running out of time here, but collective collaboration, right? Collective creativity as a team. Mm-hmm. How significant is it? And along those lines with what you just said, how do you not just foster it, but sustain it and keep growing it? Yeah, it's vital. Actually, I mean that whole team approach. I mean, think about our sports days. Think about, I
0: mean, that whole team approach is it. You know, I don't know how else to foster it other than to to, to have a regular cadence to allow it to happen. Actually, we do our best at trying to structure time with our leaders and our multiple partners within our organization to make sure that we we are doing that kind of collective think. I mean, you do it through things like brand planning processes and goals and objectives for the year. And you know, as long as you have a regular cadence of opportunities for that kind of collective group to come together and be a part of that process, I don't know any other way other than to have that commitment to that process and to have those touch points. And I would even go as far to say, as a large organization of, of mainly salespeople, there's 147 salespeople and they're all all across the country. And we pull them together once or twice a year, but we even spend time there. When we've got that entire team together, we even spend time there talking about and aligning and, and thinking through things like culture and activities that we want to do to make sure we continue to have the kind of culture that we want. And so it's being able to have those touch points with everybody.
1: Last question, I promise. You've referenced it a lot. You and I connected over this, our first conversation servant mindset. As you reverse engineer your career, if you look back on your career over 30 years now, you can really share a lot of wisdom with the younger generation of leaders. The emerging leaders of new leaders role, Where did the servant mindset really start to resonate with you? Where did that come from? And how significant of a role has that played in you being able to build cultures that are worth fighting for? Yeah, I think looking back on this, Ed, it's
0: obviously that servant mindset, that servant leadership kind of approach. Those were things that were instilled from my family, from my faith. And so when I started seeing it put into more of a business format, that's when it connected for me because I was like, man, I that makes a lot of sense to me. It's it's things like being able to remove obstacles for people. It's being able to treat people the way you would want to be. It, this, these are the golden rules is servant leadership, right? I mean, that's what it is. And so that's that's what made the connection for me is that, man, Here's a here's a leadership approach in business that not only connects with how I was raised, but also connects with my faith and connects with the kind of person I want to be. And so that's where that came from. And so once I uncovered it and discovered the principles of servant leadership, it really made a connection. And um, and I've invested in it. I'm still a student. I mean, I'm still a student of servant leadership. I mean, I've been yeah. doing it for a long time. You know, the, the great thing about leadership and or the really hard thing about leadership is that you never reach a pinnacle, right? Mm-hmm. It's one of those development things. You, it's on a development plan, but you never really reach it. You can only thrive and, and strive for being able to get incrementally better. And anybody that tells me that they've accomplished it, then they're probably on the way down somewhere, right? It's like, it just doesn't happen. And so servant leadership is one of those areas for me that is always on my development plan. I'm always a student of it. And I'm always trying to be able to learn different elements within some of those principles that I can use in my own life. Mike, we can keep
1: talking forever. I so appreciate you being here today. That is a great bow to put on on the podcast in the joy that comes with it, right? Like the fun that you have doing what you do, knowing that sense of satisfaction that you're doing things the right way for the right reasons.
0: Yeah, Ed, I appreciate it. Really enjoyed the conversation. always enjoy talking with you, Ed, and look forward to future conversations as well.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you for listening
0: to The Athletics of Business. Be sure to give us a rating and review so we know how we're doing. For more information about the show, visit theathleticsofbusiness.com. Now, get out there, think, act, and execute at the highest level to unleash your greatness.